Well, if you've been with us this last month, you know that we have been doing a sermon series entitled, The Sermons I'd Rather Not Preach and the Christian Response. Uh, We chose these topics, or actually you did, on Easter. If you'll remember, on Easter, we asked you to turn in topics that you would like to know what the Bible has to say about various topics. And one of the most popular topics was ISIS and Islam. Now, I personally did not vote for either one of those topics, but uh, this is a democracy, so here we are, and I guess thank you is in order. Uh, I'm not sure. I, as you know, as we look at this uh, situation, it's interesting, today, by God's providential hand, we have one of our missionaries, Luke Abraham, who will speak to us later in the service. Luke is actually a missionary in northern Africa among Muslims. So God knew that while you voted for this, this was the Sunday to talk about ISIS. Of course, the influence of ISIS is not just overseas. No, we've experienced some of their violence here in the United States as well. This past December, two radical Muslims who pledged allegiance to ISIS shot and killed 14 people and injured 21 others in San Bernardino, California. In June, a young Muslim who pledged allegiance to ISIS shot and killed 49 and injured 53 others at a nightclub in Orlando. ISIS may not have its headquarters here in the United States, but we are certainly feeling and experiencing their influence. Yes, their influence is felt worldwide. In fact, just this past week, a Catholic priest in Normandy, France, was killed while leading a mass in a Catholic church. The Islamic State took responsibility for the killing and said two of its soldiers attacked a church in response to the call to target Crusader coalition states. By all accounts, ISIS is a global threat. So who is ISIS, or as John Kerry calls them, Dash? What do they believe Why do they want to kill us as Christians? And as followers of Jesus in Amarillo, what should we do? And how should we respond to their violence? Well, ISIS is a jihadist Sunni Muslim group that traces its its roots back to Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. Al-Qaeda, as you recall, was the terrorist group that launched the attacks on 9-11. ISIS began... uh, as Al-Qaeda in Iraq in 2004. Then in 2006, they rebranded themselves as ISIS, a group that was committed to establishing an Islamic state called a caliphate. Their caliphate, or the land they control, is in parts of Syria and Iraq today, where they govern by strict Sharia Muslim law. The goal of ISIS is to have a global caliphate secured through a global war. To that end, it speaks of remaining and expanding its existent uh, hold over much of Iraq and its Syria. It aims to replace existing man-made borders to take Islamic's, Islam's war to both Europe and America, and ultimately to lead Muslims toward an apocalyptic battle against the infidels or unbelievers like us. ISIS holds to a very distinct and literal interpretation of the Quran, the holy book for Muslims. Here's a quote from the Quran that drives much of their aggressive behavior. But when the forbidden four months are over, then fight and kill the distrusted pagans wherever you find them, and catch them, attack them, and stay waiting for them in every stage of war. But if they repent and establish regular prayers and practice regular charity, then make it easy for them. Verily, Allah is often forgiving, most merciful. Members of ISIS often give Christians an opportunity to repent, to renounce their faith in Jesus, to recant their faith in Jesus. But if they refuse to, then they will kill him. This aggressive behavior by ISIS is unconscionable to us as Christians in America today. 
However, a quick review of church history reveals that Christians have been violent and merciless in the past as well. Here's a brief video from the History Channel to explain. The Crusades were first and foremost an expression of papal authority against the enemies of the church. The First Crusade was preached by a pope, Pope Urban II, in France in the year 1095. With reference to the Muslims and their advance in Europe and in Jerusalem, I think the Christians in Europe believed that the Islamic message of Muhammad uh, was against uh, and contradictory to what the Christians were saying. They were worried that this idea could possibly overrun the Christian idea. Pope Urban conceived this idea. It's not a sin if you kill non-Christians, if you kill non-believers in our faith. And so he made this deal that if you go and fight in the Holy Land, you will be forgiven all your past sins. A knight could sin as much as he liked. And simply by going to the Holy Land, he had been given his passport to heaven. And that was an extremely attractive deal. And combined with that, he could win fame, he could win glory, and he could come back with the treasures of the Near East. These are the things that drew knights in their tens of thousands to go on crusade. When you think about the brutality of the crusades, you think about what was done to the people that were there. This, this flies in the face of what the Christian message is all about. Remember that these guys embraced the same God, many of the same beliefs, the same prophets, and yet the streets ran deep with their blood. It shows the extraordinary power of ideas to take hold of people's minds and drive them to commit acts of great sacrifice and love on the one hand, but also acts of tremendous barbarity and hatred on the other. It's the double-edged sword of religious belief. The bloodletting of the Crusaders spread throughout the Islamic lands. Everybody heard stories about the massacre of unarmed individuals. It created this intense rage amongst Muslims. In a sense, it resulted in a new kind of Muslim crusade, a desire to raise an army to go back to liberate Jerusalem from the crusaders as an act of piety on the part of Muslims. I don't think any of those young men, either Christian or Muslim, could possibly have imagined that their struggle could possibly still be playing itself out a thousand years later in the area that we call the Middle East today. Now, as you heard the reasons that Pope Urban II gave for going to the Crusades, we know that it is not consistent with Scripture. For he was telling these soldiers that if they would go, to the, go fight in these Crusades and their sins would be forgiven and they would have eternal life. But we know from the Bible that we're saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. We don't have to go fight a crusade. We're not saved by what we do. Rather, we're saved by what Jesus has done for us. For he lived in perfect obedience to our Heavenly Father. And then he died as the perfect sacrifice on a cross for our sins, paying the price for our sins. And then on the third day, he rose again, conquering sin and death on our behalf. And we receive this gift simply through faith, not by works. Pope Urban II was sending a message that was contrary to the scriptures. And, and so bad theology led to many bad decisions. And I have to tell you, too, that 
Dr. Gates, Dr. Henry Louis Gates, who was also uh, quoted in the film there, uh, he's a historian, but he's not a theologian. Christians and Muslims do not worship the same God. The God of the Bible and the God of the Quran are very different. I have read both, and they are not the same. The God of Jesus, God the Father of Jesus, is not the God that Muhammad tried to speak for. But I do agree with Dr. Gates' statement that the young men who fought in the Crusades in the 11th and 12th century probably had no idea that their struggle would still be continuing today. Yes, Muslims and Christians have been at war for a very, very, very long time. As we Christians look at the history of the Crusades, most of us feel guilt and shame about killing Muslims because we know that that's not the message of Jesus. Jesus clearly says that he who lives by the sword will die by the sword, that we're called to be peacemakers, that we're called to turn the other cheek and and to pray for our enemies. And so when we see what the English knights of Europe did during the Crusades, we recognize that's not consistent with the message of Jesus. And so we have a sense of shame and guilt about the Christian Crusades. But Muslims, according to Mateen Alas, who is now a Presbyterian minister, he actually used to be the senior pastor at the First Pres of Edmund. Uh, now he's uh, doing some ministry among Muslims. He was raised in Arabia as a Muslim, became a Christian at Stanford while he was going to school here in the United States. Now a Presbyterian minister writes this. When the Ummah, which is the community of Islam, faces its history of coercion and expansion, There is no corresponding shame or repentance. For Islam teaches in its most authoritative sources that force is justifiable in the cause of Allah. Far from feeling regret over the past conquest, Islam takes pride in this heritage. Muslims take pride in their past conquest of violence because it's consistent with the life of the prophet Muhammad and their holy book, the Quran, which states... Fight those who do not believe in Allah, nor the last day, nor hold that forbidden which has been forbidden by Allah and his messenger Muhammad, nor accept as true the religion of truth, even if they are of the people of the book, until they pay the dues, the payment for protection by the Islamic regime with satisfaction and willing submission, and feel themselves subdued. In Arabic, uh, the word Islam means to submit, and a Muslim is one who submits to Allah. A Muslim specifically is someone who confesses that there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is the messenger of God. See, Muhammad is viewed by Muslims as the great last prophet of God, of of Allah. Uh, In 610 AD, the angel Gabriel, Muslims say, appeared to Muhammad near the city of Mecca. According to Muslims, the angel Gabriel began to to give Muhammad uh, different messages for the next 23 years, giving him holy words that now makes up their Quran, their holy book. These initial revelations from the angel Gabriel emphasized the the monotheism, the the fact that there is only one God, not many gods. And so Muhammad began to teach this message of one God. And and yet when he taught that in Mecca, he received a lot of resistance because, well, primarily there were vendors who sold trinkets to idols for the many gods that they believed in Arabia. And so he was pushed out of the city of Mecca and he went to Medina. Well, he continued to receive these revelations according to Islam, and, and he began to share these messages with the people in Medina, and they were more receptive, and eventually he, he built up a following. To where able, he was able to build his own army that went back to Mecca, and the city of Mecca submitted to his teachings and leadership. History tells us that Muhammad was a polygamist, a warrior, and a prophet who spread his teachings through military conquests when necessary. 
Muslims actually trace their heritage back to Father Abraham, specifically to, to Ishmael that Martin read just a moment ago. And it's interesting as we read about what God says Ishmael is going to be like, well, Muhammad represents much of this same understanding of Ishmael. For in Genesis chapter 16, verse 12, we read, he, Ishmael, shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Ishmael was against everyone, and Muhammad taught that Muslims should be against those who do not believe. Here's what the Quran says. O you who believe, do not take the Jews and the Christians as friends and protectors. They are only friends and protectors to each other. And he from yourselves who turns to them for friendship is one of them. Surely Allah does not guide unjust people. It's very interesting to us as followers of Christ. We are called to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're called to to befriend others so they might experience the love of Christ through us. But but Muhammad thought very differently about Christians and Jews that that Muslims should not befriend them. For they were against the teachings of the Jews and the Christians. It's throughout the Quran there's a discussion of jihad or struggle. There's the internal jihad that, that one experiences between when you try to make a decision between good and bad. And, and, and we in our scriptures talk about this in Romans 7. The apostle Paul says that the, the good things I want to do, I don't do. And the bad things I don't want to do are the very things I do. Who will rescue me? Thanks be to God for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That, Paul talks about that internal struggle. We all have an internal struggle between good and bad. But Muslims also talk about the external jihad. Or sometimes violence is needed to subdue or overwhelm your enemies, those who do not recognize Allah as God, who do not recognize Muhammad as the last great prophet. Now, of course, every Sunni Muslim is not a part of ISIS. Most of the Muslims I have met are, are very peaceful people. They, they just want to practice their, their five uh, spiritual pillars uh, of Islam. The number one pillar for Islam is confessing that there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. They have daily prayers. They pray five times a day. We probably could learn something from that. It would be good for us to pray more than just uh, before meals. They have almsgiving. Now, I think they get off a little cheap here. They only have to give 2.5% to, uh, to the church. We give 10%, so I think we're beating them on that deal. They have the fast of Ramadan, where they don't eat between sunrise and and sunset. And then once in a a Muslim's lifetime, they're to take a pilgrimage to Mecca, uh, where, uh, of course, uh, Muhammad is is buried there. You know, there are an estimated 1.6 billion Muslims in the world, but there are only an estimated 25,000 ISIS fighters in Iraq and Syria today. I saw videos of many American Muslims who renounce the actions of ISIS. They don't want to be associated with that. I also saw videos of Kurdish fighters who, who are Muslims, but as they fight the ISIS fighters, they begin to question their faith and what Islam teaches. Now, despite the number of airstrikes against ISIS, their numbers remain about the same because Muslims from various countries continue to join their forces. Countries like Saudi Arabia, Tunisia, and Morocco continue to provide ISIS with new fighters. Now, why are so many Muslims willing to fight for for ISIS? Well, the Quran states this, let those people fight in the cause of Allah, those who sell the life of this world for the hereafter, to him who fights in the cause of Allah, whether he's slain or gets victory, soon we shall give him a reward that is great. 
Now, in Islam, there is no assurance of eternal life. We have the assurance of eternal life because if we simply believe in Jesus, if we accept his great sacrifice and we follow him, then we have the assurance of eternal life. Jesus says that, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 10 verse 9 that if we confess with our lips Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. We have the assurance of eternal life. But Muslims believe in a judgment day as we believe in a judgment day. But for a Muslim, they will be measured by their good deeds and their bad deeds. And they don't know whether or not they're going to be entered into paradise based on their good deeds or their bad deeds. In fact, even Muhammad did not know if he was going to be entered into paradise at his own death. But... The Quran teaches that the the person who's willing to to die for the cause of Allah, who's willing to fight for the cause of Allah and even give his own life for the cause of Allah, he is guaranteed paradise, a great reward. That's why so many Muslims are willing to fight to the death for Allah. So how are we as Christians living in Amarillo, Texas, how are we supposed to, to respond to the violence of ISIS? What are we to do to respond to the teachings of Islam? To find out, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. It may be found on page 1030 of your pew Bible. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 48. It's a part of the Sermon on the Mount. But before I read God's Word, let's call upon His Spirit again to guide us in the reading and preaching of His Holy Word. Please join me as we pray. Holy Spirit, we thank You so much that, that You inspired Matthew to put pen to paper so that we might have the words of Jesus in written word today. God, as we read this section of the Sermon on the Mount, may may you open our eyes and open our ears and open our hearts that we might be transformed at the reading and the preaching of your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your Son's precious name we pray and all God's people say, Amen. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 38. Listen to the word of the Lord. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades. But this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, the charge of Jesus to turn the other cheek is some of the most impactful teachings that we find in all of the words of Jesus Mahatma Gandhi, a lifelong Hindu, read the Sermon on the Mount and his life was forever changed. And he began to lead a a nonviolent protest in India that eventually helped liberate India. 
Martin Luther King Jr., of course, used these nonviolent methods that he gained from the Sermon on the Mount and the, and the, and, uh, the example of Mahatma Gandhi to help lead to great civil uh, changes in our uh, civil laws in, uh, in our country today. Yes, the teachings of Jesus have proven to be very impactful, to, to turn the other cheek. They, they have led to a lot of great change by, by being pacifist. Now, these words that Jesus speaks could lead every follower of Jesus to think that, well, as followers of Jesus, we must all be pacifists all the time. After all, the earliest church father, Tertullian, once said that the, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. Historically, wherever the church is persecuted, it has grown because people have seen how these men and women have been able to maintain their faith in Jesus, willing to even die for the name of Jesus, and it's led the non-believer to ask why. As they begin to pursue that question, they begin to follow this man named Jesus. Yes, some of our Christian brothers and sisters like uh, the Mennonites and the Quakers have taken this position that, that as followers of Jesus, we must always be pacifist. They are strict pacifists because of the words of Jesus that we find in Matthew chapter 5, 38 to 39. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now let's look closely at this text as we look at this just for a moment. It says, whenever anyone slaps you on the right cheek. Now, most people are right-handed. So if I'm going to slap someone with my right hand, I'm going to probably hit them with the left cheek. So in order for me to slap them with the right cheek, I've got I've to back slap them this way. Well, everyone in the first century knew that a back slap was a form of insult. That really what Jesus is saying is when you're insulted, when someone insults you and brings shame on your name, turn the other cheek. He's not saying be a, a doormat. In fact, this is consistent with what we read in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11. Good sense makes one slow to anger and is the glory of and it is, it is his glory to overlook an offense. As the epistle of James uh, says, James, the brother of Jesus, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. When someone insults us or makes fun of us or, or says a harsh word to us, we're not called to fight back. We're called to be people of peace. After all, it takes a stronger person not to fight back, doesn't it? Not to return insult with insult. Several years ago, I was uh, in a situation where someone actually was yelling at me. They were kind of insulting me pretty loudly in front of some other people. And my impulse, my male impulse was just to, boy, rear back and just let him have it verbally. I wasn't going to fight him, but I was going to verbally let him have it. And I've done that in the past. You can just ask my wife. I, I have that capacity. Uh, so, and it has always go, doesn't usually go well. So in that moment, and this is God's grace again, God's spirit, as I'm getting yelled at, I'm reminded of James 1.19 to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And so with my eyes open, looking this person in the face, I just began to say that quietly to myself. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. I began to pray. I said, God, help me to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. And as I was praying that prayer, the words of Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 came to mind, where the apostle Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And even though these words, these insults were, were meant to hurt and, and, and harm me, I was reminded in Galatians 2.20 that, that I've been crucified with Christ. My identity is not found in, in what I do, but rather in Christ. And Jesus loves me, not because of anything I've done. No, he loves me because he loves me. That's the good news of Jesus. And he loves us so much that he's willing to die for us. And as Jesus loves us that much, shouldn't we be able to love others by turning the other cheek, 
By not escalating the conflict by arguing back or offering an insult back as we are insulted. It's the love of Jesus gives us the ability to turn the other cheek in the midst of an insult, in the midst of a harmful word. But notice that Jesus says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek. He doesn't say, if someone slaps your neighbor, tell your neighbor to turn the other cheek. No, actually, in Scripture, we find in Proverbs 31, verse 8, that we are called to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the right of all those who are destitute. We were told in Proverbs 3, 27, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to act. As followers of Christ, as followers of God, we are called to speak up for the person who cannot speak for themselves. We're called to, to defend the person who cannot defend themselves. We're called to do good to those when it is in our power to act. Yes, when we see someone being insulted, persecuted, or beaten, we need to come to their defense as best we can. We need to be peacemakers, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called sons of God. Yes, sometimes military might is needed to bring defense to the helpless. Now, I know many Quakers and Mennonites may not agree with me, but I'm, I'm Presbyterian, okay? And in the Reformed faith, we've always understood that there, there are just causes for war. Our earliest church father, St. Augustine, came up, helped create this just war theory, and then Thomas Aquinas later refined it. This just war th- theory is grounded in the words of the Apostle Paul that we find in Romans chapter 13. In Romans chapter 13, 1 to 7, basically it talks about how God has instituted civil governments uh, and given them authority to bear the sword so that justice might be prevailed, so the wrongdoers might be punished. Peter says something very similar in 1 Peter chapter 2, 13 to 14. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Both Paul and Peter recognized that God had put the emperor and the civil governments in place to make sure justice, to make sure anarchy did not prevail, to make sure justice took place, to, to, to punish the wrongdoer. And with this understanding that civil governments have been put in place to keep the peace and punish the wrongdoer, it was determined that there are just times for war. There are times when war is necessary. Now, there are seven principles of just war theory. I'm going to read through those briefly here this morning. Number one, war should be the last resort only after peaceful options have been considered. We try all the diplomatic ways we can to prevent war, to avoid war, but, but when that has been tried, war can be justified. Number two, only a legitimate authority like a government has the authority to wage a war It's not the decision of individual citizens to go to war. Number three, there should be a a clear just cause where wrong has been suffered. Self-defense is always considered to be a just cause. Number four, there needs to be a a rational probability of success. You have to have a a clear vision that success is probable. If there's no chance of success, then, then it wouldn't be wise to go to war. Number five, there needs to be right intention. The primary objective of a just war is to reestablish peace. In particular, the peace after war should exceed the peace that would have succeeded without the use of force. War and violence, according to just war theory, should only be used ultimately to bring peace, to be peacemakers. And number six, there should be proportionality. The violence in a just war must be proportional to the casualties suffered. The nations involved in the war must avoid disproportionate military action and only use the amount of force absolutely necessary. We should not use excessive force, but only that which is necessary to subdue those who are causing violence. And number seven, 
Finally, the military should distinguish between militia and civilians. Innocent citizens should not be the target in a just war. In August 2014, after the U.S. started bombing ISIS in Iraq to protect minority Christians from the violence of ISIS, Pope Francis said this, In these cases where there is an unjust aggression, I can only say that it is licit to stop the unjust aggressor. Now, according to John Calvin, uh, John Calvin makes it real clear that it's, it's not popes or preachers who should make declarations of war. He was probably thinking of Pope Urban II who, who started the, the Christian Crusades. That's not really the role of, of a pastor or a pope. It's the role of a civil government to decide to go to war. And so I'm not here to talk about how we should increase our bombings on ISIS or whether or not we should increase our military presence there. But, but as I read many theologians regarding just war theory and its application to ISIS, almost all of them said that this is a just war theory moment. This is a time where just war theory applies to help keep ISIS from killing more people. But back to my original question. As followers of Jesus Christ here in Amarillo, Texas, how are we to respond to the violence of ISIS exactly? Let's look again at Matthew chapter 5, 43 to 44. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. When was the last time you prayed for ISIS? I've got to be honest with you. I prayed for ISIS about a year ago. I watched a video where this man who had been persecuted by ISIS was able to escape. And he's a very strong Christian. And in tears, he was praying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so I was moved to, to pray for ISIS in that moment. But for the most part, I don't pray for ISIS. I pray for those people who are being persecuted. I pray for the armed forces who are fighting ISIS. I pray for our world leaders who are making decisions about military force. I pray for wisdom for them. But I don't pray for ISIS. But Jesus said we should. So how should we pray for ISIS? Should we pray for their destruction? I mean, that's my, that's my initial impulse. Lord, destroy them. Wipe them away. David has some of those prayers, right? Bash the kids' heads on the rock. I mean, that's kind of what you're thinking, right? How did Jesus pray for his enemies? As he was hanging, bloodied, and beaten on a cross, dying, breathing his last breaths, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I believe God is calling us to pray for enemies, to pray that God might forgive them and ultimately God might convert them so they might become followers of Jesus, so they might have the assurance of eternal life that they so long for. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. As I hear about the physical violence that ISIS is doing and their beheadings and taking girls as sex slaves and all the violence that they're creating, I know they are following the evil one, who, as Jesus says, is the father of lies, and he comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. And so we need to pray that their eyes might be open, the scales of their eyes might be taken off. As the Apostle Paul, who was on the road to Damascus to go and kill Christians, And then God intervened and blinded him to the truth of who Jesus Christ is, that Christ appeared to him and his eyes were opened eventually and and he became one of the chief followers of Christ. Yes, we need to pray that God will forgive them just as God has forgiven us. And we need to pray that God will open their eyes and convert them 
so that our eyes might be open to who Jesus Christ really is. Just think about it. If every member of ISIS began to follow Jesus, the violence would stop. And I believe that's something worth praying for that would bring glory and honor to God. Please join me as you pray now. Gracious and loving God, as we sit here in Amarillo and we hear the news reports, it's overwhelming. And God, I thank you so much for Luke and Sarah Abraham and their ministry in North Africa in a region of the world where ISIS is a very real threat. I thank you for the courage they have. You do not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. I thank you for their ministry, Lord, and I pray for every missionary in that part of the world, Lord, that you would help them to be bold. I pray for the church that is being persecuted, God, that they would continue to be bold for Christ, that you would strengthen them, that you would encourage them, that you would surround them with your love. You would watch over them. And God, help us here in Amarillo to see how we might continue to support those who are on the front lines with ISIS today. God, I pray for our world leaders. I I pray for our troops who are in harm's way. I I, I pray, Lord, for all those who've been persecuted by ISIS. I pray for comfort for them. I pray that for the thousands and thousands of people who've had to flee their homeland and as they go to these foreign countries, Lord, to seek refuge, Lord, that I pray the church might be there. Give them the good news of Jesus so their eyes might be opened to who Christ really is. And God, I pray for the, the fighters of ISIS, Lord, that you would convert them, that you would break their hearts of stone and give them a heart of flesh and help them see that what they're doing is wrong, that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. He's the Prince of Peace. You've called us to be people of peace. And they might humble themselves and declare, as we have, that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. Oh, God, may you continue to do a mighty work through the church today so that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. To the glory of God the Father, and in your Son's precious name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen.